Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Hi there, Zelda. Hey, Denise. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. And hi, everybody. This is Murderous Roots, a podcast where we get into the family trees of killers. So how you been? I'm good. Um, It's been an exciting week overall. But right now I'm just hanging out looking at my backyard and thinking, man, I need to rake some leaves. How about you? It's been it's been a week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so my husband, I, my daughter brought home a cold. Mm. So now it's going through. I had it first. Now my husband and, you know, after, you know, with the pandemic for a while there, I wasn't getting sick at all. So this is kind of miserable. I'm so sorry. And there's a lot going around this year because nobody's wearing masks. But oh, yeah. And then last night, my daughter, well, yesterday afternoon, I should say my daughter went to go take a shower and she fell in the shower. <gasps> oh, no, no. she's not 80 year old woman. She's just 10. But um, yeah, she hurt her elbow. So I had to take her to her this urgent care. Oh, my gosh. Is she okay? She's fine. It's just, uh, as I said, a contusion. So basically a big bruise. Okay. Oh, poor little But she's kind thing. of happy. She gets out of PE for the week. Ooh, hey, might be worth it, right? <laughs> well, at first, I should say, she was happy at first, and then she realized this is the week of Thanksgiving. So she's like, wait a second, we do all the fun stuff this week. Oh. So now she's kind of bummed. Oh, man. Oh. So she's kind of torn. Gosh. Hey, I, I can't believe I forgot to mention the Wheel of Time drop this week on Amazon. And my I life know. has revolved around that all week. No. I know, right? So surprising. <laughs> it was only like... So how many greatest... times have you watched each episode? I don't think I can count that high, honestly. It, it's wow. like Bridgerton was for me, where I just watched it on a loop. And so that's what I'm doing with the first three episodes so far. So it's just three episodes, and you, you probably have it memorized and can quote? There's so many good moments in it. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, so I won't tell you any of them. But um, honestly, it's delightful, and everybody should watch it. I'm hoping to catch the third episode tonight. I was going to watch it the other night. My my husband, because he got the cold, he was on midnight shifts this week. And normally he takes a nap at night before he goes into the shift. And that's when I was going to watch it. Well, he did not do that because he stayed home for work. So mm-hmm. he's going back to work tonight. So I'll get to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's the little things. It's the, you know, he's on this, these rotation of shifts. So like he'll have two weeks of days and then two weeks where he does evening shifts and midnights, and it rotates like that constantly. And I've gotten to where I kind of, I really enjoy having him home with me. I do. Mm-hmm. So don't mistake that, people. But I've gotten into this routine where I kind of like when he's gone in the evening because I can watch all my shows. Because he's not a big TV fan. I love TV. Mm-hmm. So in this way, we're, there's no fighting. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. But oftentimes I find myself, you know, my ADHD brain gets overwhelmed with all the choices. So I'll go to an old show I used to watch Mm -hmm. because that's easier. I totally get that. Well, so my guilty pleasure is Psych. I don't know if you've ever seen Psych. It used to be on the USA Network. I have. I just never could get into it. Yeah. I love it because it's so damn dumb and I love it. (laughs) And 
the funny thing though is they're coming out with a third movie sometime next year and so i'm like okay i want to rewatch all the episodes before the movie so that i can you know be hip to the lingo as the kids say are the kids really saying that now no 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 (laughs) what the kids are saying is a language i do not understand You kind of got it easy, though. You're an aunt, and most of your nieces and nephews are beyond that stage, right? With the new language? Oh, oh, no. Everybody, the slang is insane. The first time one of my nieces said, oh, my gosh, that song slaps. I was like, is that good? (laughs) And then I started remembering that when we were kids, it was like, ooh, that's bad. And bad was good. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I think teenagers just do this shit on purpose, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So what do you have planned for Thanksgiving, Zelda? I've gone over to one of my cousin's houses and I have been instructed to bring the roasted Brussels sprouts and my famous corn casserole. So how about you? So is this the one with the baby? Yes, I get to go play with the baby. So you get baby baby snuggles for Thanksgiving? I get baby snuggles. Although their grandparents will be there too. So I suspect I'll have to share the baby with the grandparents, but that's okay. For us... (laughs) We're we're kind of figuring out Thanksgiving still a little bit. My husband has a midnight shift on Thanksgiving Mm. Day. It's his last one of a string of seven. So he, but he gets home at 8 Mm a.m. And so we're trying to decide what we want to eat. Most of our girls do not like turkey. Okay. (laughs) So fair enough. Some people are weird. We're talking about turkey breast. And now my husband's like, let's look at maybe ordering one of those pre-made meals for us. Because the next day. We're going out to Iowa to see my in-laws. Oh, yeah. And we're having kind of a early Christmas celebration with that family because we haven't been able to do that in a couple of years. What with COVID and oh, that'll be nice. weather and different factors. Wow. That'll be fun, though. You know, yeah. the road trip will be cool. And it's always fun to celebrate, right? I mean, right. There are a lot of things to be thankful for this year. There are. You're going to really love this episode. We scoured through all of our previous episodes and then did a poll to find out which episode (laughs) you all wanted to hear again. And in this case, we're actually merging together two old episodes because we had a part one, part two. This way you get all together at once and you don't have to go into two different parts to listen to it. And it's every bit as riveting as it was last time. Even more so, I would think, since you don't have to have that cliffhanger ending. (laughs) Everybody, we hope you listen and enjoy Jim Jones. And don't forget, please leave us a review. Five stars, please. (laughs) (laughs) But more than just putting the stars, just leave a comment about why you like the program. And if you do that for us, we'll we'll probably read it on the air. Mm -hmm. And we will be back with a fresh episode after Thanksgiving covering the author, Barbara Newhall Follett and her disappearance. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. And now we get to talk about mass murder. So, yes, I mean, this isn't our normal serial murder, <laughs> but no. when you kill over 900 people, I think it counts. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And today we are talking about Jim's Jones and Jonestown. Well, as a native Hoosier, I feel I should somehow apologize for Jim Jones because he's also a Hoosier. Jones was also a cult leader beginning in Indiana, moving to California, and ending in Guyana. For everything he did during his life, he's remembered for his leadership of the largest mass murder-suicide in American history until 9-11. 
The phrase drinking the Kool-Aid was spawned from this event as he forced his followers to drink grape flavor aid, which is a knockoff brand, laced with cyanide. About 918 people died and 304 of them were children. Now, I'm not going to go into the graphic detail of it because as I was reading what they did to get the children to drink this stuff, I just started crying because, you know, it was infants, it was babies. It oh, was, yeah. You know, and so I was like, okay, I can't go into that too it much. Was so it was, it was unbelievable. And, and this case kind of interested me for a number of reasons. Ever since my dad was brainwashed a few years ago by a con man, it's been fascinating to me to see how easily most people can become brainwashed given the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so this mass suicide that happened in Jonestown happened in 1978. And I was eight years old. And I remember how it dominated headlines in Indiana, where he was a well-known preacher and supporter of integration. Now, he was a really complicated person, obviously. So first of all, he was a communist and he was a fighter against racism and had one of the few integrated churches in Indiana in the 50s and 60s. In fact, in 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. And he led many fights that led to desegregation in Indiana, including the Indy Police Force and a couple hospitals. Yes. Were you as surprised as I was to discover how much he was involved with civil rights? And yes, I was shocked. I, I, yeah, I had no idea. I was shocked because I mean, you really see in him a person where had he turned his forces to good, he would have really moved the world, you know, yeah. but he didn't. Um, he used, you know, religion as a cudgel and lined his own pockets and then, you know, eventually convinced a whole bunch of people to kill themselves. Yeah. And it's like, but all of the amazing work he did for human rights just like went completely down the drain because that's what happens when you're a mass murderer. True. And, you know, even one of the things that kind of caught my attention is he was hailed as a leader by people from the NAACP, the Urban League, um, Harvey Milk from San Francisco wrote like oh, a letter. That to, one. Yeah. And I was just, I was just astonished. And so as you know, there's another side to him. So he was born on May 18, 1931, and his childhood was shaped by the Great Depression and World War II. And Indiana during the Great Depression, you may recall, was greatly influenced by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. It had a big resurgence during the, the Great Depression, which is interesting because it seems to have had the opposite effect on him than intended because he became a staunch integrationalist, which was really controversial in Indiana in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But by all accounts, little Jim Jones was an odd child, obsessed with religion and death. He often held funerals for small animals, including ones he himself had killed. In 1949, when he was 18, he married Marceline Baldwin, a nurse about four years his senior. They moved to Bloomington, Indiana, so Jones could study at IU. Now, that I could see, because it's IU. And as a Purdue gal, everything out of IU is a little suspect. But um, he was there for about two years, and then they moved to Indianapolis, and he went to Butler part-time and eventually graduated in 1961, which you'll notice that's like a 10-year gap because he was going part-time and, you know, starting churches and things like that. So what's interesting, too, is the couple had one natural child in 1959 who they named Stephen Gandhi, but they adopted about six more children. Five were formal. One was seemingly informal, but it's a little questionable exactly how all that went. Um, Agnes was part Native American, and then there were three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne, and then one white child who was the son of two of their cult members. 
Mm -hmm. um, and they also made the papers as the first white couple to adopt a black child in Indiana. Uh, Jim Jones often referred to them all as a rainbow family. So Jones started his own church when he realized religion could fill his pockets. <laughs> He launched what he called the People's Temple in 1955, and from the beginning, it attracted people who responded to his liberal politics, integration, and social values. Reverend Jones was ordained in 1957 by the Independent Assemblies of God, and then in 1964 by the Disciples of Christ. So these are two fairly mainstream Protestant denominations, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. Now, from the beginning, it kind of had the earmarks of an apocalyptic cult. That switch didn't really flip until 1965 when, after returning from a trip to Brazil, he convinced his Indiana followers to move to California as a way to survive the upcoming nuclear war, which he predicted to happen in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So now waiting. California... Yeah, exactly. Thank God we're still waiting, right? Well, yeah. So California is where his cult really gained ground, and he made lots of strong political connections, which also raised the reputation of the People's Temple. At one point, the church likely had about 5,000 members, but they boasted at the time of about 20,000. Now, during this time, Jones is looming larger than life to his followers. He's having sex with lots of them, both men and women. He's invading their life decisions, including money, life choices like who they marry, and constantly keeping their attention on him and on their work. Because, you know, that's how cults work. Right. You remove people from their normal relationships and take them over. And about that time, he also starts a drug habit that a few of, only a few of his followers really knew about. So now we're going to speed forward because there's so many things we could delve into about the oddities of Jim Jones. For example, he raised money in the early days of his church by selling monkeys door to door. <laughs> I have an article on that. I think I'll share on the website. It's yeah. a picture of him with the monkeys too. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, I when I was living in Missouri, there were a couple of guys I knew there who were like, thought the epitome of having a pet was owning a monkey. And I thought, <laughs> Where did you even get this? But apparently it was quite the thing to do in the 50s to own a monkey. Well, yeah, it all went wrong with him when all the monkeys were dead on arrival, I believe. Oh, I didn't see that one. I believe that's where that plan went <laughs> by the wayside. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're going to kind of gloss over all of the idiosyncrasies and mm -hmm. leap to the summer of 1977 when Jones and several hundred temple members abruptly decided to move to the temple's compound in Guyana after Jones learned an expose was about to be published, which included allegations by former temple members that they were physically, emotionally, and sexually abused. Now, Jones had started building Jonestown, which, by the way, was formally known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, several years before the, that New West article was published. And the, uh, the Jonestown in Guyana was promoted as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Jones purported to establish it as a model community, adding that the temple comprised the purest communists there are. <laughs> I know, right? He did not, however, permit members to leave Jonestown. Although adults could leave to go to nearby towns for various reasons, children were never allowed off the campus. So anyone wanting to escape would have had to leave their children behind. So you can see why people stayed. Right. Jones began to propagate his belief in what he termed translation once they were in Jonestown, where he and his followers would all die together and move to another planet and live blissfully. Oh, so alien type of a yeah. philosophy. Sounds exactly. familiar like a lot of other cults. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you start seeing the the brainwashing stuff really take hold here because he can. He has people trapped in a compound and he can do anything he wants with them. So he began to run audio tapes over loudspeakers of him preaching all day long, telling his followers that bad men were coming to torture them and their children and they had to be prepared. He started making them practice mass suicide called White Nights. And at least one time, his followers thought they were actually taking poison. And then when nobody died, he kind of laughed and said, ah, you know, why don't you just test how brave you were? Go up, go ahead and go back to bed. Because he literally wake them up in the middle of the night to do these things. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, back in California, the relatives of his followers are going crazy and begging for government intervention. So in November 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan led a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. And this is when the shit hit the fan. Yeah. So although the inspection itself went off without incident at first, several members of Jonestown slipped a message to Ryan that they wanted to leave. The delegation then left really fast the a- that afternoon. Now, the same day they arrive, they're, they're getting out of there because th- there was a temple member, Don Sly, who, tried, who attacked Ryan with a knife. Oh. And the attack was thwarted, but Ryan was like, I'm out of here. So Ryan accommodated 15 members who wanted to leave, and Jim Jones let them leave the compound. But while they were boarding the charter planes to leave, members of the People's Temple drove up and opened fire, killing Congressman Ryan and four other people, wounding many of the remaining people, including NBC News staff, congressional aides, and family members of former Temple members. After Ryan's departure from Jonestown toward Port Katuma, so this is happening while they're just, they're on their way to the airport. Marceline Jones, who you may recall, was... um, Wife. His wife, sorry. Marcel okay. Jones, as you may recall, was his wife, made a broadcast on the public address system stating, everything's all right, go back to your homes, it's all fine. During that time, aides are preparing a large metal tub with grape flavor aid, poisoned with Valium, chloral hydrate, cyanide, and phenergan. About 30 minutes after Marceline Jones's announcement, Jim Jones made his own, calling all members immediately to the pavilion. A 44-minute cassette tape known as the Death Tape records part of the meeting Jones called inside the pavilion in the early evening of November 18, 1978. So after consuming the poison, according to escaped Temple member Odell Rhodes, people were then escorted down a wooden walkway leading outside the pavilion. It's not clear if some initially thought the exercise was just another white night rehearsal. In response to reactions of seeing the poison take effect on others, Jones counseled, die with a degree of dignity, lay down your life with dignity, don't lay down with tears and agony. He also said, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear, I don't care how many anguish cries, death is a million times preferable to 10 days more of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, that so just wrote, makes me ill. Yeah, it's just, it's so insane. Rhodes described a scene of both hysteria and confusion as parents watched their children die from poison. He also stated that most quietly waited their own turn to die and that many of the assembled temple members walked around like they were in a trance. Now, the crowd was surrounded by armed guards, which was offering members, basically, you can die by poison or you can die by getting shot to death. Cries and screams of children and adults are easily heard on the tape recording made. As more temple members died, eventually the guards themselves were called in to die by poison. 
That evening, a transmission was sent to the Temple Church in nearby Georgetown telling them to commit suicide, and one of the members killed herself and her three children in response. Wow. So there were 309 people who died at, the jo at Jonestown in Guyana, and then there were four more people. And so when you add up people around who committed suicide, it's like 918. Jones was found lying dead next to his chair in the pavilion between two other bodies, his head cushioned by a pillow. His death was caused by a gunshot wound to his right temple that Guyanese chief medical examiner Leslie Mutu stated was consistent with being self-inflicted. Larry Layton, who had fired a gun at several people aboard the planes, was initially found not guilty of attempted murder in a Guyanese court, employing the defense that he was brainwashed. Acquittal wow. in a, I know, right? Acquittal in a Guyanese court didn't free him, though, and he was promptly deported back to the U.S. and arrested by the U.S. Marshal Service as soon as he set foot in San Francisco. So he couldn't be tried in the U.S. for the attempted murders of Gosney Bagby, Dale Parks, and the Cessna pilot on Guyanese soil, was instead tried under a federal statute against assassinating members of Congress and wow. other internationally people, uh, protected people. So that was basically Ryan and his staff. Right. He was convicted of conspiracy of aiding and abetting the murder of Ryan and the attempted murder of Dwyer. Paroled in 2002, he's the only person ever to have been held criminally responsible for the events at Jonestown. Dang. So Jackie Spire, who was shot five times on the airstrip as Congressman Ryan's aide, survived despite waiting 22 hours for medical help and is currently the U.S. Congresswoman for California's 14th District. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And the, yeah, the compound in Guyana has been left to be reclaimed by the jungle as the locals want nothing to do with it. And that is the synopsis of, <laughs> and, and honestly, we could sit here for literally five hours talking about all of the crazy stuff related to this. And, you know, the people who escaped, how they escaped, you know? Yeah, well, I do have something to add. Tell me. I think you'll find interesting. Larry Layton, who you brought up, was married to a young woman by the name of Carolyn Louise Moore. And he and she joined Jim Jones in California. And at some point, Jones convinced Carolyn to divorce Larry. Ah. So he could have her to himself. Mm -hmm. And together they had a child. His name was, he was called Chemo, but his name was Jim John. Mm -hmm. And he was given the last name Prokes because after the baby was born, he convinced Carolyn to go with another guy who worked for him and was part of the leadership of the People's Temple. Um, gosh, what was that name again? Oh, Michael Prokes. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe Michael Prokes did not die at um, Jonestown. He wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But he did die within a few months in Modesto. Mm -hmm. So I just found that a little interesting that's wild well what's what shocked me too is you know it's been what 30 some 50 years is it 50 years now 42 years 42 years since this happened and they've done a number of follow-ups at different anniversary dates mm -hmm. and what shocks me are how many people since that happened the people who survived it who or who weren't involved in Jonestown but were part of the people's temple right like terrible things happened to them like unrelated terrible oh. things you know and it was just like what on earth you know i mean and i believe in demons so i really think there was something freaking demonic going on there right. but it was just like i don't know it was really startling to me well and another fact that 
I don't know if you know or not, he had three of his children were with him at Jonestown mm-hmm. and five of his grandchildren. They all died. So he was responsible for the murder of his children and grandchildren. Oh my gosh. Didn't one of his kids survive? Yes, Suzanne did. And she just died in 2006. Because she wasn't there. Right. That's why she lived. But wasn't one of his sons, one of his adopted sons, was at a basketball game or something? So they ended up being able to escape. I'll yeah. look this up, you know, you know just what? so that we know for sure. I know you're right on that, but for some reason, <laughs> I think he died pretty young, though. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm not seeing it right away on. He had, no, he died there. Yeah, I believe you're right. And I might have something marked wrong on my tree. So go ahead and look that up and I'll get started. I do have one correction for you, but it's not your fault. Tell me. Because I believe people have written things wrong, but I have seen the following. So Jim Jones was not born on the 18th of May, 1931. He was born on the 13th of May, <gasps> according to his birth certificate, which I oh have Oh my gosh. I know. It's such a huge difference. Well, no, but, I mean, but facts are facts. Right. But I find it funny that that perpetuated oh, a different website. You know what? Mm-hmm. I think that's not, I can't blame that on anyone but me having a typo. Oh, because I'm like, wait a second. I look back at my notes. Oh, yeah, it's just May 13th. Yeah. Oh, okay. But thank so, you for saying that. Okay. I appreciate it. Um, his parents were James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putman. He was their only child. But even though he was the only child to the two of them, he grew up in an area in Indiana where he was surrounded by family because his father came from a very large family and he was surrounded by his uncles and cousins and aunts and all of that. And he often was seen playing with some of his cousins that were closer to his age and such. I do have a picture I will share of him with some of his cousins as a child Mm. on the website. So check that out. Jim's father was James Thurman Jones, like I mentioned. He was born on the 21st of October, 1887, likely in Randolph County, Indiana. He was one of 13 children to his father and one of 10 to his mother. I'll explain that more later. For his early life, he helped his father on the farm. Then World War I happened. And in 1916, he enlisted. He enlisted in the U.S. Navy, I believe. It gets very confusing on the records. But he, I found a card on the rendezvous, rendezvous Report Index where he's listed as a seaman with enlistment on April 1916. I know, I had to say it again because that's how he's listed. It's a seaman. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. Okay. You're so bad. <laughs> I wanted to say sailor, but I was afraid I would get somebody going, no, that's not what their job was. That's a whole different thing from somebody who's very exacting. <laughs> Um, but they had him serving on the USS Pastoris. Now, what I find interesting is that he also filled out a draft registration card in 1917. Mm. So why would he fill that out unless they, there was this feeling that everybody had to fill it out? You just didn't have to serve if you had already served? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But he was also listed on the U.S. Army transport list as being with the U.S. Army Company B, 41st Auxiliary Forestry. Forestry Battalion. Say that three times fast. Wow. And it was sailing to New York. So I believe he served until the end of the war, or at least the end of 1917, early 1918. After the war ended, he became an auto mechanic, and he married Lynetta Putman 
1926. Now let's talk about Lynetta. He was the oldest child of Jesse Putman and Mary Elizabeth Farrell. When her parents got married, Jesse was between 20 and 22, and her mother was somewhere between 14 and 16. Oh my. I don't know her exact birth, or I'm missing exact dates, so I can't tell you how old she was. Lynetta was born in Princeton, Indiana on the 16th of April, 1902, and her father, Jesse, was a farmer while they were there. They moved to Lake City, Arkansas by 1918, where Jesse got a job working as a blacksmith. Sadly, Jesse died a year later in 1919. Lynetta had two siblings. One was Delbert, who died at two years old, and the other was another sister. It was a sister, Thelma, who married at least twice, but I don't know anything more about her. Now, Lynetta's first marriage was not to James Thurman Jones. She married around 1919 at the age of 17, a man by the name of Cecil G. Dixon, who was also 19, and they lived with their mother in 1920 census. Cecil worked as a brakeman for the railroad, and her mother was working doing sewing. Wow. The marriage didn't last, and they divorced. Now, I've seen some suggestions that there was another marriage that she had starting in 1923, but I was unable to find the evidence of that. Now, I will say this about Lynetta's family. I am stuck on the family. I can't find Jessie any earlier than 1900. I can't find her mother on the census. I know they've got to be there, but I'm stuck. So I don't have any more on this line. What I do know is that Lynetta returned to Indiana from Arkansas. I don't know if her mother returned, if she passed away, or if she stayed in Arkansas. She moves to Indiana. She meets James Thurman. They get married around 1926. She was 24. James was around 38 or 39. Mm. And this That's was his, not like gross at all. No, and this was his first marriage. That's interesting. Yeah, I found that quite interesting. But I think he was just so busy up until through the war. Maybe right after the war, he was too busy doing other things and wasn't ready. Who knows? Um, James worked in road construction at the time. Oh, one quick thing I almost forgot to mention um, about Lynetta's family. I know there is information on her family because Jim Jones, one of the things he used to talk about is that he had Native American heritage. Well, somebody decided right after all that came out in the early 80s to go investigate his tree. And he said the Native American heritage came from his mother's side. So... They took a look, started digging, and there are like two or three big boxes stored at the Indiana State Archives, I believe. That's where they're at. They're down in Indianapolis, I know that much, filled with information on this family. So I know the, the information exists, but it's not digital. Oh, darn it. Indiana, get it together. And, and while Indianapolis is only about three hours from me, I just haven't had the chance to go there <laughs> just to dig for this, this one. Well, on his Native American heritage, I came across a couple of articles that mentioned he claimed it, but that mm-hmm. people disproved that he was he had any Native American heritage at all. But they didn't give specifics. And it could be that from the tree that this woman dug into, she disproved it, but it's hard to know where that came from. Um, James died in 1951 at the age of 63 from chronic nephritis, which is basically a lot of kidney results in kidney damage and failure. Lynetta was still young, and she worked as a prison guard at the Indiana State Women's Prison starting in 1959 and worked there until the late 60s, early 70s, when she began, and basically she, as soon as he moved to California, she followed him and left wow. her job. Before she worked at the prison, though, she did work in 1943 
at a company called The Perfect Circle, which was producing needed war materials. Oh. So basically, she was kind of in that Rosie the Riveter class. Mm-hmm. I believe she was probably sewing, which is not quite riveting, but <laughs> <laughs> she was adding to the war effort. And this is with her child at home. So, so back to her following her son to California. It, she was an ardent supporter of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. She believed in her son so much. Now, I know mothers tend to be pretty much cheerleaders, but I like to think that if I was falling into a cult or trying to lead a cult, my mom, who is Miss Common Sense, or Mrs. Common Sense, I should say, would sit there and either tell me, I'm no, not even either. My mom would tell me I'm crazy and to stop the nonsense. She would not follow me into that. <laughs> I think you're going to have to, like, take a look at your kids, though, because they're, they're clever enough to start their own religion. So yeah, I think they are. Keep an eye out. (laughs) (laughs) I have some smart kiddos. They're almost frightening, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't think I would follow them that that much either. As I've told them, I will love them no matter what, even if they go to prison. I might not like them sometimes, but I'll always love them and always have their back in that way. Um, She also went. Is it is it Guyana or Guyana? I pronounce it Guyana, but I'm not really sure. Okay. So she also went to Guyana, and she passed away in December 1977 there. No one at home knew she died. Nobody knew she died until the events 11 months later. So they were just surprised to learn not only, you know, of the Jonestown massacre and everybody dying, but more shocked that she had died and nobody had bothered to tell them. Wow. There is a memorial for her in Indiana, but her remains are buried in Guyana, or Guyana, whatever. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so, a crazy family. It is. And that means basically Jim wasn't sending news to anybody on anybody's deaths. So I can only imagine how many other people possibly died or got ill and nobody knew about it at home. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and at that time when they were in Guyana, he had a really bad drug problem. Mm-hmm. And so he probably just was so disconnected from reality at that point. You know, which, I mean, we talk about his followers being disconnected from reality because what if Jim, Jim Jones was doing, but I think between his drug, drug problem, his natural narcissism, and, you know, just his general personality, I suspect toward the end, he believed the stuff he was preaching. Oh, I think you're probably right. Why kill himself? Because a narcissist right. typically would not kill themselves in that situation. They'd watch everybody else do it, but they would be like, oops, sorry, mm-hmm. didn't work on me. I'm all good. Yep. But I think he, I think you're right on that. Well, now we're going to go to James Thurman Jones's father, John Henry. And this is also the grandfather of Jim. This family, by the way, is lived in Indiana for a long time. Deep roots in Indiana. He was, John was born in Owen County, Indiana, which is southeast of Indianapolis in 1848. He was the third child born to his parents. And as a child, the family moved to Randolph County, which is east-northeast of Indianapolis along the Ohio-Indiana border. So basically, they just moved up north. Don't know why, they just did. He got married to a woman by the name of Frances Ellen Helton in June 1871 in Randolph County. And together, they had three sons, Clement, John Enos, and Elza Francis. Then, Francis died in February 1877, leaving him and the, their three children 
alone. I found John and his sons in the 1880 census living with his parents, who are now living in Wayne County, Indiana, which is in a county immediately south of Randolph. And at the time, he was working as a school teacher. Hmm. I'm going to tell you a little bit about John's children with Francis. They would be the half-siblings of James Thurman and the, so I guess, half-uncles of Jim Jones. The oldest was Clement Lawrence. He was born in 1872. And not one of these three children stayed in Indiana, which I found fascinating. Really? Because have you been to Indiana? Well, no, I found it fascinating (laughs) because almost a good portion of the rest of the children did. And like I said, there were deep roots in Indiana. So I was kind of surprised how quickly these three seemed to be like, nope, we're not staying close to dad. We're gone. He, he first moved to Jefferson, Ohio by 1910. Then by 1920, he had settled in Greenwood, California with his wife. She died in 1927. Then Clement moved to Washington State by 1940 and remained until his death in 1958. Um, so I think that makes him 83 years old when he died. The second son, John Enos, was born two years later in 1874. He settled in Reno, Nevada by 1910. And I mean, they didn't just leave. They left. They went thousands of miles away. I was going to say, they didn't just go to Ohio. Right. Then he made his way to Sacramento, where he died at the age of 93 in 1967. The last son of Francis, Elza, was born in 1875, and he was also in Reno by 1910, where he worked as a barber until he retired. He even owned his own shop, and he died in Reno in 1959. It's kind of interesting, too, that they didn't settle near each other either. You know, it's not like the three brothers all went to the same place out in California. They just scattered. Well, the the two younger of that set were next to each other for a time. But, yeah, not for a long period of time. That is kind of interesting. So we'll go back a little bit. Like I said, 1877, his wife dies. By 1880, he's living with his father. Around 1882, he marries a woman by the name of Mary Catherine Shank. He was around 34 years old. She was 19. Ew. There's a, a, a bit of a pattern of older men, younger women in this family. And much older men. Yes. Mm-hmm. They had 10 children together. Ina, Estella, James, Homer Vigil, that's just one guy, Herbert Lester, John Paul, Yes, this means there were two Johns of wow. children, Sarah Florence, Everett, and Ernest. And by the way, can I tell you how much not fun it is to look for John Paul Jones? <laughs> I, never I can't really, even imagine. <laughs> I never really ever found him. John died in June 1941, outliving his wife by 23 years. And I have wow. his, he had his obituary. And it was very prominent in the paper. And, of course, I didn't write the source of this, but I will have it on the website for people to see. But it says, oldest resident is dead at Lynn. John Henry Jones, 93, Lynn's oldest resident, died at his home. Surviving are 10 sons. Three daughters survived. So, basically, all of his children were still alive when he passed away. Wow. And so he had 13 children all total. Yes. Wow. So... When I say that Jim Jones had lots of cousins and family near him, he had lots. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about James Thurman's siblings, so Jim Jones's aunts and uncles. James's oldest sister was Estella Emma Jones, who was born around 1846. Hold on a second. That's wrong, because that's not even 
possible. I don't know why I put 1846, but as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. Okay, I have a correction on that one really quick. You could just start over. Because, well, no, because I, I mean, I might edit the correction in <laughs> and show that I'm not infallible. But I knew that couldn't be possible because John Henry Jones was born in 1848, so how could he have a daughter who was born two years before him? Mm -hmm. No, his older sister was born 1885. Mm, that makes more sense. Yes, a lot more sense. And she had two of ch two children, one of each. And I found this interesting, 10 years apart. Oh, wow. So who knows, maybe they had fertility issues. And mm -hmm. it just, you never know. But I, I love this part coming up. So starting in 1929, let me go back for a second. She married Fred Earl Moore in 1906, and they had two children. Starting in 1929, both of them worked for the James Mormon Orphans Home. Oh. Fred was the superintendent and Estella was the matron. And they worked there until 1943. And this Orphans Home was Quaker. Wow. So it's likely the, fam the Moors were Quakers. Fred died in 1967, Estella in 1981. But let me tell you about this Orphans Home. So it was established in 1889 at the bequest of James Mormon in his will. James was born in 1795 in North Carolina and settled as a young man in Wayne County, Indiana. He was a Quaker who was very active in his church, as well as an abolitionist, which I think was pretty par for the course for Quakers. Mm -hmm. His estate when he died, an unmarried man, so he never married, never had children. He died in September 1888, was valued at $750,000. Oh, wow. Now, and that's according to an article in the Fort Wayne Sentinel on September 26, 1888. In today's dollars, that is worth $20.5 million. Very large estate. Of that estate, he bequeathed $45,000, about $1.2 million today, to establish an orphan's home. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's because one of his parents or both of his parents died when he was young. He wasn't exactly an orphan, but mm -hmm. he wanted to make sure people weren't alone. Kids yeah. weren't alone. It operated until 1961 when it was unable to make the necessary state-mandated upgrades to the facility. While it operated, 637 children resided there in total. Land was sold in 1968 and the building raised. Although I do have a picture, it looks like part of the entry still exists. Oh, wow. As of today, the home still holds assets and distributes small scholarships to Wayne County high school students going to college. Wow. And some of this information came from waymarking.com. And some of it came from you because I asked you to do some quick research on this. And you're probably going, what in the world is she looking for? Just to see if it was still active. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering how this all related. But this makes sense now. <laughs> I mean, and isn't this fascinating? that the sense of altruism also seems to have run through this family. Yeah. That, you know, so many of them were doing jobs that were basically of service to others. And then you get the evil child coming up as Jim Jones. Well, who, it gets all twisted in him. Mm -hmm, exactly. It makes me even more curious about the Putman side, but who knows, maybe I'll be able to find something someday and then we can revisit, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it, there's a lot of that, I think, in this family, because I'm not done with his aunts and uncles. Lester Clyde Jones, which was one of James Thurman's younger brothers, was born in 1894. He went to school at Purdue and later Harvard. Oh, I knew there was something to love about him. 
According to the US, his U.S. passport application, by the age of 22, he had retired, and I'm putting that in quotes, from farming. Because that's what it literally said, retired from farming. Wow. And I, I laughed. And Chris goes, well, maybe they used the term differently back then, which is possible. But he retired from farming to pursue a new career, this one with the Standard Oil Company. And the job with the Standard Oil Company would send him halfway around the world. His first passport was issued in October 1916 with plans to travel from Japan then to China, specifically Shanghai. Wow. Mm -hmm. He would make many lengthy trips over the next four years to different parts of China and often was only home for a few months at most at a time. Wow. In 1920, on a visit home, he married a woman by the name of Doris Eiler, who was five years his junior. Together, they returned to China soon after they got married. And while they were overseas in China, they had one daughter, Peggy, and it was their only child in 1922 in Tsingtao, Taiwan. Mm. Now, the family did come back to Indiana on occasion and visit about one, once every one or two years. And there would always be a notification in the paper, guess who's home and visiting. That's so cool. I, I'm shocked they were able to make that trip that often because it's not like they could hop on a jet. You know? Right. It was, they were taking the boat, and you can see them on passenger manifests. Wow. There were several articles about this family because some interesting stuff happened while they were there. This first one was in the journal and Courier on the 31st of July, 1930. Purdue graduate in district held by Chinese Reds. And it goes on to say that Lester Jones, 35 of this city, who was reported to have been among the last Americans to evacuate the communist-held city of Changsha in China is a Purdue University graduate and has been in the Orient for 12 years. Lester Jones visited here last in 1928. His relatives here have had no word of him for more than six months and were greatly worried. Wow, that, that had to be something to be a part of that. Yeah, and it was the International News Service who brought news that they were okay and the family was able to relax. No, they're okay. Wow. Then in the paper, the Palladium item, um, on the 1st of June, 1940, Mrs. Lester Jones. A radiogram received here announced the death of Mrs. Doris Jones, 40 years old in China, following an operation. Mm. So basically, Lester's wife has died in China. Their daughter, Miss Peggy Jones, entered the Winchester High School last fall and was a member of the 1940 graduating class. Wow. Yeah. So from that, we also learned that Peggy came back to the States to live and finish her high school years so she could go on to college in the U.S. We'll get the college part more in a minute. Then in the Times-Gazette, two years later, on the 23rd of March, 1942, Lester Jones of Lynn is reported safe and well in Hankow, China. Since so many folks have been interested in knowing if relatives have heard from Lester Jones, the following letter has been submitted to this office for publication. And it says, Mr. L.C. Jones is in good health in Hankow. This is based on a report received by the State Department from the Swiss government representatives in China. Information reaching us from other sources indicate that Mr. Jones is able to live in his home. Since your brother is in a Japanese-occupied area, all regular channels of communications have been suspended. Whoa. So it's World War II. And as I read that article, I had remembered, oh my gosh, I forgot Japan had occupied part of China. China was involved in the war to some degree. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Then a few months later, in the Palladium item, 2 August 1942, Winchester man aboard liner returning from Pacific area. Lester Jones, who has been with Standard Oil Company in China for the past 28 years, is listed as a passenger on the liner Grips Home, carrying 1,400 Americans and other nationals from the Western Pacific area. Mrs. Jones's daughter, Peggy, who was born in China, graduated from the Winchester High School two years ago, but now is in school at Long Beach, California, and has gone to New York to meet him. Wow. But I'm glad he got out. Yeah. That had to be terrifying. It is. And this is around the time he stops working for Standard Oil. <laughs> I think I would too. <laughs> because he, he did end up enlisting in the military during World War II in the Navy. Wait and a second. How old was he? He would have been in his 40s at this point. Wow. But so I, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm just, I'm surprised they allowed him to enlist when he was that age. I think it's because he brought something they needed. Ah, and tell me more. So in the Union City Times Gazette, on the 18th of January, 1946, there's a headline, Commander Lester Jones goes to Washington. Commander Lester Jones of the Army-Navy Petroleum Board has gone to Washington, D.C. after a week's visit in Winchester. Well, there you have it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he was contributing information on the petroleum board. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they want you. They'll, they'll, and for all I know, they might have recruited him, too, said, mm -hmm. hey, we want you to join. We can use your services for what we need. Oh, yeah. Um, at the t end of his time with the Navy, he ended up settling in Southern California where his daughter lived. Now, we got to talk about his daughter, Peggy Jones. I'm very intrigued. And I have a surprise for you, Zelda. <gasps> okay, I'm ready. And I, I have to explain to our listeners, when I found this little tidbit that I'm going to share in a minute, I came so close to picking up the phone and calling you or at least texting you, and I started the text, actually. And then I said, no, I'm going to leave this as a surprise. <sighs> I'm very excited. So I'm telling my husband, Chris, and he's like, I don't care. And so I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> Okay, so Peggy attended, when she was at college, she was actually attending the University of South California, Southern California, USC. And then she married a man, and you'll love this name, by the name of Oak Berger. Oh, I love the name. Mm -hmm. Now, Oak was a police officer in Los Angeles in the 1940s and on, and he moved up through the ranks. 1940s? Yes. In fact... Oak later taught criminology at the Los Angeles State College and was considered a lie detector specialist. And also he was considered a police psychologist in some articles. Then I found the following article. And we'll get to Oak towards the end, but it's fascinating. Uncle Sobs Out Girl Death Story. And this is in the Los Angeles Times on the 20th of November, 1952. John Chauncey Lawrence, 37, took the witness stand in his own defense today and broke into tears as he gave his version of how his 16-year-old niece, Catherine Nodal, met her death last August 19th. He claimed that she died as a result of being hit in the head accidentally with a jack handle, but he denied beating her with a rock to make it look like a hit-and-run accident and said he did not molest her sexually after death. <laughs> yeah, oh, my. We, we could almost cover this one on our podcast. It's I should put this, I'll put this on the website because it's interesting. Basically, he was claiming that he had a flat tire 
and he used a bumper jack to raise the car. And the car pitched forward. I jumped back with the jack handle in my hand, and I must have swung around and hit her with it in the head on accident. Resuming his story, the defendant said the girl's head was bloody and she appeared to be unconscious. He tried to make a tourniquet on her neck with a piece of inner tube. A tourniquet yeah. on her neck? Mm-hmm. And was afraid he would choke her. Well, that's what happens when you put a tourniquet on a neck. You're going to oh choke the God. person. I know. So he wasn't the brightest bulb in the Christmas tree is what no. I'm gathering. I mean, at the very least, he's a really bad liar. Yeah. He's, Seriously. He's a, I mean, if I was on the jury, I'd be going, oh, I do not buy this story. And then he saw headlights of a car approaching. So he continued and he lost his head, dragged her body over toward what he thought was a grain field, but was an embankment. And both he and the girl rolled over it. I, I'm just. Wow. He cried again when he told how he laid the girl's body carefully in the middle of the road. And this is what could become significant here. Holding her hands across her chest. So he was posing her. And this was the position where her body was found. So apparently they needed an expert witness and they brought on Sergeant Oakberger of the Los Angeles Police Department. And this he was the state's final witness. And he told how he was unable to link Lawrence with the Black Dahlia murder oh. or any other Los Angeles murders. Wow. He yeah. He testified that Lawrence admitted to having intimate relations with Catherine after she lay dead. Oh. Oh. Yeah. But that Lawrence was not involved with Black Dahlia. Apparently there had been some comparisons to it in the news. So Oak then must have worked on the Black Dahlia case. That's what I assume from that, that he had great knowledge on that case. That is so wild. And that's why I was dying to tell you, like. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, and I don't know. It blows my mind how many intertwinings we see between murders like Michael Swango and H.H. Holmes. Yes. You know, and now we have Jim Jones peripherally related to Black Dahlia murder. I'm like, that's wild. I mean, not that his family committed the murder, but just that they were involved in investigating it. I thought, oh, I better clear that up in case somebody like kind of like dozed off in this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm just, wow. That's so wild. It's such a small world. It is. It really is. But I mean, the name Oakberger was one of the easiest names to find. But if you Google Oakberger, you'll get a lot of information about different places that sell hamburgers. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Well, let's get back, and we're going to go back to James Thurman's youngest brother now, Ernest Jones, who was born in 1907. So this is Jim's uncle. He volunteered for the U.S. Army days after Pearl Harbor began in December 1940. Was it patriotism or maybe something else? Now, it probably was a little bit of patriotism, but I also believe it's because Ernest had legal trouble. Lots and lots of legal trouble. Really? In 1930, I found him on the census as a prisoner at the Indiana Reformatory in Falls Creek, Indiana. It's now known as the Pendleton Correctional Facility. In fact, John Dillinger the famous robber and mm-hmm. criminal, spent time there himself. It's possible they were there even at the same time because John Dillinger was there from, I believe, 1928 through 1929. Wow. It just depends on when Ernest went into prison. Dillinger was transferred to another facility in 1929. Do we know um, what he was in prison for? No. 
I was unable to narrow that down because there was lots of different stories. But my guess is it revolved around alcohol because all his legal troubles seemed to revolve around that, whether wow. it be intoxication or illegal possession during prohibition. So my best guess is it was possession or maybe he was even selling alcohol and it was it was a time of prohibition. And sometimes and people got thrown in prison quicker than usual. And this is still in Indiana, isn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah, because grain alcohol was huge during prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, and Al Capone did a lot of uh, trade within Indiana for alcohol. Yeah. Um, in 1933, Ernest is out of prison and he gets married. But I know they divorced before 1940. By 1940, he's considered a vagrant by the courts, and he's still being arrested over and over again. Wow. By 1943, he was out of jail again and still struggling with alcohol. And then in 1944, it seems alcohol proved too much. The palladium item on the 15th of March, 1944, body of Lynn Mann found in River. Ernest Harold Jones, 36 years old, was found dead in the Whitewater River near the Dornan, Doran Bridge Tuesday afternoon. Apparently the victim of drowning. Police say the body was found by Andrew Reese and Robert Day, teenagers, who were in the river bottom hunting for wood as material for bows and arrows. Jones had been dead for some time, police said. Mm. The body indicated that Jones had fallen from the top of the bank and drowned probably after having been knocked unconscious by the fall. Wow. Yeah. And so how old would Jim Jones have been at that point? Uh, that is 1944. He would have been 13. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure that they knew each other. They you would think, because they lived in the same area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I get the impression wow. that his brothers had bailed him out before. Not always the same one. But mm -hmm. uh, one quick thing I did want to mention that occurred to me as we were talking one thing that Jim Jones had brought up with was his father mm -hmm. was that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, he used to say that. And I noticed, oh, and I'm, I'm probably not going to find it. Um, I mentioned somewhere that, that the county they were living in at the time, Wayne County, was a, the headquarters for the Indiana chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Like that was the, the biggest grouping of Ku Klux Klan members were in Whitewater. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitewater? That's funny. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Like, did they do that on purpose? I don't know. So now let's talk about John Henry's wife, Mary Catherine Shank, so Jim's grandmother. She was born on the 6th of January, 1863 in Ohio. Now her tree was very confusing at first. And I looked at other trees and found people were making them, made the same mistake I initially did. And they were tying her to a wealthy family in Ohio. But if you are somebody who do, does these trees or this is your family and you have that, you are wrong. That is not her family. Oh, wow. And a quick tip, do not copy other people's trees. Do your own research, people. Because when I was doing the tree and I saw that connection, I'm like, okay, I'll go with this for now. And I checked other people's trees and they were going that way. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm on the right track. But certain things were going off is this doesn't fit. Why do I look at other people's trees? Usually it's for reference, references and documentation. If I see the only source they get is from another person's tree, I don't trust it automatically. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to see that they have other documentation. 
I don't copy their tree, but I will follow a trail and the sources to verify. So it's really important to do your own research. And the mistake that was made was an easy one to do because her death certificate lists her parents as Jacob Shank and Sarah Wrights. In 1870 in Ohio, there was a family of Jacob and Sarah Shank living there with a daughter named Mary. Mm. So I can see why people would go with that way. And that's why I started to as well. But here's some of the problems I found. The family in Ohio was wealthy and they were still living there in 1880. But Mary was living in Indiana in 1880 by herself. Why would she leave Ohio and a wealthy family to live in Abington, Wayne County, Indiana, working as domestic servant. Mm, yeah, that would be a clue. That brought up some questions for me. Also, in 1870, Mary was listed as Mary A, not Mary C, and she was age two, not seven. Now, mm. genealogists, for the most part, know census takers will make mistakes like this all the time on the age. I have a couple of people on this tree where in one census, they're 36, and the next census, they're 43. So it happens, and that's why you have to verify and keep digging to make sure. But here was the clincher. I found a tombstone of the children who died to Jacob and Sarah in Ohio. They had lost a few children, and they had a list of each child on the tombstone along with how old they were by years and months and days, so I could, and plus their death date, so I could figure out how old they were. One name that was listed was Alfreda M., who died 1876 at the age of eight years, 10 months. Now, remember I said in 1870, I found them with a Mary A., mm. who was two years old. Well, this fit with the Mary A. because she was two at the time and would have been two as well there. So I'm like, no, this can't be it. Let me go back and start over. To figure this out, I went and looked in Abington specifically to see if other Shank family members lived there in 1880, not just Mary C., who was working as a domestic servant. And that's when I found William Shank, who was 14, working on a family farm. So I have Mary working as a domestic servant, William working on a family farm. Now I'm beginning to believe that her parents had died because a sibling's also working, they're not in their home. Mm -hmm. That would probably mean that the family moved to Abington before the parents died. So I looked closer at the 1870 census, this time looking for William, not Mary, and found Jacob and Sarah in Abington. Oh, so nice. This gives you an idea of how you do the research. Mm -hmm. So Mary, it turns out Mary Catherine was the second oldest of five children. She had one older sister and three younger brothers. Her parents were Jacob Shank and Sarah Wright, both born in Ohio in 1840. They married in 1862 in Shelby County, Ohio. Between their third and fourth child, the family moved from Ohio and settled in Abington around 1866. Then sometime in the 1870s, Sarah died. Jacob married again, this time to a Mary Helmsing, who was 11 years his junior, around 1879. So in the 1880 census are Jacob and Mary, and the only one of his five children living with them is his youngest, James. All the other children were living and working with other family members and not with their father. The oldest being Emma, 18, Mary, 17, William, 14, and Charles, 12. Jacob died in 1929 in Indiana. Now, we'll go to Jacob's parents, which were William Shank and, William, and Rachel Stauffer. So William Shank would be Jim's second great-grandfather. He was born around 1814 in Frederick, Maryland. By 1836, he's living in Montgomery County, Ohio which is like Dayton, Ohio area. He married Rachel Stauffer, who was the same age from Pennsylvania, 
1836, and they had at least three children, Jacob, Henry, and Elizabeth. Family moved from Montgomery County north to Shelby County by 1850. Then the Civil War begins. And William enlisted. He enlisted in the in Company K of the 14th Missouri Infantry. Now, I found myself going, what? He's in the Missouri Infantry, and he's in Ohio. Do I have my facts wrong? <laughs> Did mm-hmm. I screw something up? Nope. He enlisted in April 1862 in Columbus, Ohio. And let me tell you about the unit he joined in which was originally called the Burgess Western Sharpshooters. Well, I love the name. Mm-hmm. The regiment he joined was special forces that were armed with long rifles that were highly accurate. The men who joined came from Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Missouri. It was originally formed by a St. Louis eye doctor by the name of John Burge. Burge had been part of a group of Americans who tried to save Canada from the British Empire by trying to invade it back in 1838. Now, I... Do not recall learning this one in history, but if you are curious, go Google Patriot War 1838, and there's a ton of information for you. I'm going to totally do that. (laughs) And I I might provide the Wikipedia link for people. But to become a member of Burgess Unit, you had the, the recruit needed to be able to hit a target 10 times at 200 yards, with misses being within three inches. Wow. Right? Burge formed the group in December 1861. Then in February 1862, days after Brigadier General Ulysses Grant ordered the unit to join his offensive, Burge was arrested for illegally raising a regiment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So basically, Grant takes his unit, goes, okay, we need you. Come with us. And Burge, you're arrested for having even started this group in the first place. I find that fascinating that they apparently regulated militia more back then than they do now. Yes. Like, I might start my own militia. Yeah. Well, William joined this unit, this special group, days before the Battle of Shiloh in southern Tennessee in April 1862. So it's unlikely that he was there for that. Okay. But he was probably present for the Second Battle of Corinth in Mississippi in October 1862. Then at the end of that month in October, he claimed to have mustered out due to health issues, something with his lungs and returned to Ohio. Now, this unit changed names over time. And at one point it was called, I can't remember the name, but it was something Illinois Infantry okay. <laughs> later. And then the Illinois records, they have him as being a deserter. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. But according to other later records with the military, they have him as mustering out. So maybe he got it resolved. Mm-hmm. But, they, but he was also described as being only five foot five. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So he returns to Ohio, and then by 1870, he and his family moved to Abington, Indiana. In April 1884, his wife dies. That's Rachel. And then in November 1884, William returns to Ohio in Dayton to live in the veterans' home. And that's the record where it shows that he mustered out. Okay. And he remained there until March 1886. Now, which veterans' home was he in, in Indiana or in Ohio? Ohio, at the Dayton, Ohio. He ended up returning to the veterans' home again in June 1890 and stayed until April 1893 with the ability to come and return any time without any reference to saying so. He died sometime between then and 1900. I'm not sure when. I was unable to find his death record. I do not know his the name of his parents or his wife's parents. I have a few possibles for William um, where there were people in 
Indiana who had come from, and actually more Shelby and Montgomery, Ohio, that had come from Maryland. So I, I suspect they're related, but I can't find anything to confirm it. Okay. We're going to come back down and we're going to go to John Jones's, John Henry Jones's father was Warren Jones and his mother was Sarah Stelfer. So these are the great grandparents of Jim Jones. Warren and Sarah married on the 28th of October, 1844 in Wayne County. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sarah first. She was born in August, 1824 in Pennsylvania. She was one of eight children, five girls, three boys. Her parents were Jacob Stauffer and Hannah Hine, who were married around 1820 in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Berks County um, is a bit to the east of Reading. Okay. It might include some of the suburbs of that. Sometime after 1838 and before 1850, they moved to Indiana. Now, Hannah's father was Johannes Hein. I suspect he was an immigrant from Germany based on his name. Hannah was born in 1797, and then she was baptized in May at the Schwarzwald Reformed Church in Berks County. This is a Lutheran church that was established in 1737 and is still active to this day. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, she died at age 92 in May 1889 in Indiana. Her husband, Jacob Stauffer, was born May 1798, and he was the son of Jacob Sr. and Mary Byler, a Mennonite family. Hmm. Mary Byler's father, this is as far as I get, is um, John, who died in 1821 in Berks County, and that's all I know about that. I think we should start keeping track of how many different denominations, because we've got Quakers, we have Mennonites, we have Lutherans. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of any Catholics yet, so. There's no Catholics. I hate to tell you. I know. Hmm. Okay. So now let's go. So we did Sarah Stalford. Let's talk about Warren Jones, um, Jim's great-grandfather. He was one of at least 11 children, maybe more. Oh, my goodness. Now, let me tell you, and it's more about the process, but how I gather names and explain a couple things just so people know. And this is why I think filling out your census is so important. So if you haven't done so, I don't know if you still can do it. The first six censuses only had the head of household listed, and then it would count how many of certain age groupings. Okay. There was so many under five, so many between five and 10, so on and so forth. And they would also do it, separate if they were slaves. And in fact, 1850 and 1860 had special slave counts. Mm. And I won't call them special, but they were slave counts because okay. there's so many things wrong with them. But we'll tackle that another time. Mm -hmm. um, starting in 1850, though, so the first six censuses were 1793 through 1840. During 1850, they took all the names of the household, though, and listed them with their age, gender, and where they were born, what state. If all the children lived at home, easy peasy. I got all the whole family right there. If not, you can sometimes look at the neighbors. Sometimes parents or children live next to each other. At least you would have a hint to go look and see if it's connected. More times than not, I'm like, yep, that's got to be the child. That's got to be the dad. And then I'll verify. Another place to get names are wills. But that doesn't always work because sometimes the children are not included because they've either all passed away themselves. Or I've seen a couple of instances where... The, the person, the um, husband usually has left everything to the wife, which mm -hmm. that doesn't happen very often, but sometimes that's it and it makes mm -hmm. it simple. But well, and just to put in a plug for proper estate planning, mm -hmm. a lot of times people will make a will and they have like their first two children and then they never think to update it. And so they unintentionally disinherited 
like all yeah. the rest of the kids because they never bothered to redo their will. Which reminds me, I need to update ours. But we do have a little thing and any other children that were to come. So. <laughs> Um, anyhow, and the other issue was sometimes people went into probate. A lot of times you run into people who did not have a will, and that mm -hmm. you're not going to get a list of names there. Sometimes you can find names from vital records. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you if you actually have a non-testate uh, succession issue, mm -hmm. there is something that they have to do called an, a determination of heirship. And if you can find that file in a probate case, that's going to say everybody and how they're related. Yeah, I mean, I've gone through probate records looking, and sometimes I'll find something, but more often than not, with the old records, mm -hmm. they don't always have that. But that's a great idea. Just a little heads up from a probate yeah. attorney. <laughs> um, newspaper articles will sometimes have mentions and tombstones, especially at specific cemeteries you can get. So it's very possible to miss names. That's why a lot of times I'm like, he had at least five siblings, because I'm not sure that that was it. In some cases, families might also have records passed down in some form, and their trees can help you by leading you to a paper trail, or they have their own documentation, so you can contact the person they have, the family Bible, for example. Mm. Now, I say this because Warren's parents married in 1809, but didn't have their first child until 1812, which nowadays is pretty normal, but back then, they usually had their first child within the first year or two. Mm -hmm. Then there are no other children I can find until a child was born in 1824. So that's a 12-year gap. And so that's why I say there's likely more than 11 children. Mm -hmm. Now, you're going to enjoy this because I'm, I'm winging this next part here. So the 1850 census had real estate values listed on it. So they would ask the people or they, like, I don't know how they came up with the numbers, what their real estate was valued at. And Warren's value in 1850 was $500. Then 1860, they wanted their real estate value and personal estate value. Well, Warren was doing better. By 1860, his real estate was valued at $2,000 and personal estate at 400. Nice. In 1870, his real estate was valued at $8,000 and his wow. personal estate was at $2,000. So they were comfortable. They were very comfortable. And it's interesting because you'll see people going, well, let's look at the value of the dollar then. But I don't think that's the best way to do it because mm -hmm. I've just never been able to do it. So I got it in my mind to do a little math because I'm weird that way and I like math. So I decided to convert by looking at the value of an acre of land in Wayne County, Indiana in 1870. And I found a source that gave me an idea of the value of the land in every county in the United States in 1870. If these were averages. Assuming the real estate value was all the land they had, which I doubt it could have included the house and other items, but I just went on the assumption that that was all he had. So I divided the number by the real estate value that was going for at the time per acre, and that would mean he probably owned around 133 acres, possibly. Based on the average price per acre today, that land would be worth over $1.1 million. Wow. If I'm correct. And I could mm -hmm. be very wrong, but it was still a lot. Yeah. Wow. So Warren ended up dying in 1902 of progressive atrophy of the muscles. That's a first. I've never seen that one before. So there's a doctor out there who can explain that. That'd be awesome. Sarah died six years later, almost to the same day that Warren died on September 1st, 1908. Wow. 
Warren's parents, so Jim's second great-grandparents, were Edmund Jones and Ruth Jarrett. They were both from Kanawha County, Virginia, which is now known as West Virginia. Ha! Huh. Mm-hmm. Ruth was born in July 1788, but not much else is known. Edmund was born April 1789, and they got married in 1809 in Kanawha. If I'm mispronouncing, please let me know. Um, they settled in Indiana between 1812 and 1824, the births of the children that I knew about. <laughs> and I looked at their, their real estate values. And in 1850, Edmund's real estate was valued at $3,500. So he was doing quite well for himself. And using the same math, he would have owned around 150 acres, and it would have been worth up to $1.3 million today. Wow. But they were definitely comfortable. They died within two years of each other in the 1870s. I'm going quickly through this because the good stuff is coming. More you mean there's I more? Said. I know. But wait, there's more. Now we get to John Junior, John Jones Sr., Jim Jones's third great-grandfather, who was born the 20, January 28, 1755 in Culpeper, Virginia. In November 1775, he married 15-year-old Frances Morris. Together, they had at least five sons and one daughter. But before they started having children, and their family really got started, the Revolutionary War was going on. So hold that thought for a minute. Let's talk okay. about Frances Morris's wife. Her parents were William Morris Sr. and Elizabeth Stipp. So these are Jim's, Jim's, Jim's fourth great-grandparents. William was born in 1722, Elizabeth seven years later in 1729. They married on Elizabeth's 17th birthday in 1746. Together, they had at least 10 children. Only two of those children were daughters. Oh, my. So eight boys. <laughs> that poor woman. Mm -hmm. Their oldest child was William Jr., who was born in 1746, and their third oldest was Leonard, who was born in 1748. And I say this for a reason. We'll get back to it. Now let's go to the revolution. Okay. Really quick, where are they living at this point? I they, are, they are in Kanawha County, Virginia. Okay. John Jones Sr. enlists in the Revolutionary War as a soldier under Captain Arbuckle, and he even served with his brothers-in-law, William and Leonard Morris, and they were in a special capacity. And I found a Sons of the American Revolution application form going over everything about these people. Woohoo! It is amazing. Okay, and this was... Um, and this application for this person, they used an extract from a book called The History of Kanawha Valley. And it says that William Morris was the father of 10 children, including Francis, who married John Jones. And John Jones, like I said before, came from Culpeper County. And he has been in the Revolutionary Army and has served to the end of the war. He first came through the Kanawha Valley with Colonel Andrew Lewis on his way to the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774. So he married her while he was already fighting with the Revolutionary. Wow. He came back to Kanawha after the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown in 1881. Wait, 1881? Oh, that's what they put, but I think she meant 1781. This is why I get for reading directly instead of going, wait, so good catch. <laughs> now, I'm going to go back because it does say that in 1773, so he would have been 17 years old, that John took out patents for land of 359 acres on the Kanawha River, 400 acres in the same year, 400 acres in 1797, and is said to have controlled the situation from Point 
Creek to the Narrows, and he controlled all the lands of, oh, Paint Creek, not Point Creek, in the Kanawha Valley. This is probably where some of that wealth came from, mm-hmm. going down to the sons and the grandsons that was probably passed down. It doesn't sound like he was struggling much. Um, John Jones was with Captain John Field when he was wounded at the Battle of Point Creek Pleasant, Point Pleasant. And the Daughters of the American Revolution have organized a chapter and called it the William Morris Chapter of the DAR. I believe they are still called the William Morris Chapter of the DAR. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, And the chapter is located at Pratt, West Virginia, at the old home of John Jones. They have a bronze slab to the memory of John Jones, and I believe there's also a slab for William Morris. And the William Morris we're talking about on this is junior, I believe, not senior. Wow. Francis's brother. Another application included the following, that John was an Indian scout with William and Leonard from 1778 to 1789. Now, just as a quick reminder, the Indians were fighting on the side of the British during the Revolutionary War. Most of them, I believe. Um, And they covered over 60 to 70 miles along that area of the Great Kanawha River. And before I read this, this is a direct quote by somebody, I believe they wrote it in their 20s or 30s when they were applying for the membership. And it's offensive to a degree, and you'll understand why here in a minute. And I do not in any way endorse the offensiveness of the statement, but I'm just reading it as described. Okay, an attack by the Indians was repulsed, and the savages then turned to Donnelly's Fort and Greenbrier. Two bold and daring soldiers dressed themselves in Indian costume and made their way thither, and apprised the settlers of their danger in time to save them from extermination. Mm. The savages comment, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Did not like that. So, Well, and think about it. Because, I mean, the Europeans were just coming in going, it's our land now. And then being upset that the Indians were fighting back. It's like, what? Well, and then they take, you know, they're different. They don't live the same as everybody else. They don't have the same type of houses and all this. So they must be Mm -hmm. savage. Ignorance is so much. But I hope we've learned better. No, no, we haven't. (laughs) So let's go back to the Morris family. We're going to go back to William Morris, who was the father-in-law of John Jones and the fourth great-grandfather for Jim Jones. He was the son of Thomas Morris and Sarah Whale. Thomas's father was Anthony Morris, who was born in 1681 in London, and B.B. Guest, who was born in 1685 in Philadelphia. They married in 1704 in Philly. Let's do a quick review because I've just thrown out a bunch of names in a short amount of time. We have Jim Jones. His father is James Thurman. Grandfather John Henry, great-grandfather Warren, second great-grandfather Edmund, third great-grandmother, wife of Warren Jones, Francis Morris, fourth great-grandfather William Morris Sr., fifth great-grandfather Thomas, sixth great-grandfather Anthony Morris. Now Thomas, um, the fifth great-grandfather, had at least one brother, Samuel Morris, who was the sheriff of Philadelphia from 1752 1755 and from 1758 to 1760. Wow. And there's going back a little bit, there is actually some historical markers in the area. And this one says first settlers, Walter Kelly settled here about 1773, but was killed by Indians. William Morris came here in 1774 and made first permanent settlement in this valley. 
We built a fort, had a boatyard, and started a church and school. This is about Kanawha, West Virginia. Wow. By the way, the next one, our next topic, which we'll bring up soon, Kanawha Valley, come, that area comes up. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So here's one little fun fact I have to add, even though this is already pretty long. Ben's half-uncle, we're going back to the beginning, was Clement. And I, he had two sons, one of which was Edwin Harold Jones. So his half-first cousin. Edwin was born 1893 in Indiana and died in 1971 in Skagit, Washington. I bring him up because he was a meteorologist for the Weather Bureau, what is now called the National Weather Service. As you know, Zelda, and our listeners may not, is that my husband is a lead meteorologist for the National Weather Service. And my husband, being ever the helpful man that he is, found Edwin's obituary that was listed in the American Meteorological Society newsletter. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Yeah, Edwin H. Jones, member emeritus of the AMS and retired meteorologist of the U.S. Weather Bureau, died in 1971. Um, talks where he went to high school. I don't think we care about that. But from 1913 to 1917, he worked for the Weather Bureau in Boise, Idaho, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Wagon Wheel Gap, Colorado. He worked for the Weather Bureau, now the Weather Service, as assistant officer in charge, fruit frost forecaster, and climatology section of such various places as Portland, Oregon, Reno, Nevada, Ithaca, New York, Redding, California, Yakima, Washington, Burbank, California, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Anchorage and Fairbanks, Alaska, as well as Boise, Idaho. In 1951, he retired from the Weather Bureau. Wow. Yeah. It was so funny because I was finding him in different newspapers and doing stuff like he, he first went up to um, Alaska and he had an assignment and he had to leave early because he got sick. Mm. And so they're they brought him back down to California for a time, and then he ended up back up there at some point. But anyhow, I could not help myself. I had to do that one. That's awesome. And that was a lot. I mean, that was the family of Jim Jones, and we didn't even cover everything, by the way. There's so much I, more. But I had Oh, to my gosh. And well, I mean, when those families have 11 and 20,000 children each, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> like, I, I mean, I didn't even go through every one of the children. I was still working and I'm like, I'm looking at what I have and I'm like, oh, I already have a ton. I need to just stop because there's no way we're going to be able to cover it all. Oh, yeah. And well, as it is, we've been on, gosh, this is almost two hours. <laughs> Well, let, let's add a little more time on because I did look up the surviving children of Jim Jones oh, okay. just for a quick overview because awesome. it turns out I had said he had like six children. It turns out he actually had nine children. If you include oh, everybody I missed that he adopted. Okay. Yeah. And I, well, I mean, that was just all like, it's all very confusing when you start talking about his children because yeah. some of the children, were they his children? Were they not his children? Things got a little messy. So the surviving sons were Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim. And the reason that they didn't take part in the mass suicide was that they were playing a basketball game against the Guyanese national team in Georgetown. And so they actually ran to the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown to try and get help. But the soldiers guarding the embassy refused to let them in because the, the shootings had just happened at the airstrip. 
So um, then they went to the temple's headquarters in Georgetown and found the bodies of the woman and her three children who had committed suicide. Now, at that point, the, Gu the Guyanese soldiers arrested the three of them and kept them under surveillance and lots of questioning because they thought they might know some, they might have been yeah. part of all this mass suicide. But it looks like all three are still alive and have children. Now, Jim Jones lost his wife, his first wife, and his unborn child at Jonestown. But um, he has since remarried and has three sons, one of whom is a high school basketball star. Oh, wow. So then three of his children died at Jonestown, three, four, five of his children. Mm -hmm. Looks like died at Jonestown. Lou, Agnes, and um, Lou and Agnes. Suzanne wasn't there. Then John Stone and Chemo, who were, Jim John was Chemo. Right. And they both died at Jonestown. So, I mean, it's just kind of like... <laughs> this whole, so he lost about half of his children at Jonestown. Oh, yeah. uh, well, not lost. He killed them. Um, and then the ones that survived survived because they weren't there. Thank goodness. Yeah. And I, I saw an interview two years ago with Stephen Jones mm -hmm. on ABC and I'll post a link to that in case anybody's curious about it. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's actually fascinating. I just, I can't even imagine because was he the one who like went back like 25 years later to the, to Jonestown he might and they have went been. through the buildings and, you know, cause the jungle's taken it over because like literally nobody wants anything to do with it, which you can see why. And they actually found like the tub or the big, what do you call it? Barrel. They mm -hmm. actually found the big barrel that they made the poisonous drink in. And I mean, it just, so, so much of it seems to have just been left untouched once the bodies were removed. And most of those bodies were buried in a mass grave in Guyana. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me because I believe he's written several essays about mm -hmm. his father. And part of the reason they were talking to him in the interview was because it had been 40 years since Jonestown. So it was one of those anniversary mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interview type things yeah and as far as I know he's the only one who's really been open to a lot of interviews well I can't even imagine I mean there the few people who survived it mm -hmm. like one woman was an older woman who was hard of hearing and she didn't hear the announcement everybody's supposed to come and drink kool-aid so she and then when she did I guess she crawled under her bed and then just waited until it was all over and came out I mean, but I mean, her sister died there. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, uh, it's just astonishing. It's astonishing what this man did and that people followed him literally to their deaths. Yeah. And what's interesting is looking at his tree, so many, like you said, gave back in some fashion. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like he had some decent people in his tree. Yeah. His, his father could very well have been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I have no reason for doubting that. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't necessarily make him a good, he wouldn't necessarily be a good person because of that, you know. I, right. However, there were other people in the family that did a lot for the communities and other places and worked hard mm -hmm. and what could have been. And Well, and I kind of wonder if, since he had so many extended family members around him when he was growing up, Mm -hmm. If that isn't also what kind of fueled his intense desire for um, for equality under the law, for really? no matter what race you were, um, 
in direct opposition to how his father felt, apparently. Um, and yet there was something inside him that, you know, from early days, they could see there was something very odd and wrong about things. And it's like, what even, like, what happened, you know? Well, and my guess is he had some natural charisma. Mm -hmm. He was an only child, and there's nothing wrong with being an only child. Please don't take that. But <laughs> some parents will take that only child and raise them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And I get that impression that maybe mom did that, that he was the end-all be-all. Mm -hmm. And that's what he expected, and that's what he wanted. And then when he got into preaching, he was getting that feedback, and he loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm sure there was a good part in there where he was wanting to help others. Mm -hmm. But it's also just as likely that about his sense of self as mm -hmm. being, I'm a savior. Because one thing mm -hmm. he did tell people and is that, he would bring people back from the dead. He had that power. You don't need the Bible. You mm -hmm. have me. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. His narcissism and this sort of like Messiah thing going on mm -hmm. was from early days. Yeah. I mean, right when he was first starting his own church. And it's, again, it's just fascinating to me that from the get go, he saw establishing his own church as a way to become rich. Yeah. And that it wasn't, this he wasn't driven by this desire to bring people together as much he was driven by the desire to make money and he saw that wow all of these evangelists running around indiana seem to have some pretty good change in their pocket and I mean, that's why he decided to do it there was some good in it but i mean anybody was welcome to join his church it didn't matter what color you were i mean it's interesting because you know in this time of black lives matter he really did believe in their value of black lives and thought that was important but at the same time he killed some of those black lives by giving them poison yeah. when they get to guiana so mm -hmm. he's like at both ends of the spectrum but at least i guess he was a he killed he didn't care who he killed it didn't matter the color of your skin i'll kill you anyway i guess mm -hmm. oh gosh that's so sick well it just is, it's just astonishing to me because when we look at people who also led this sort of dual existence, mm -hmm. you had like H.H. H. Holmes, for example, he kept things very separate and compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. um, the, and everybody we've seen up to this point that we've talked about kept things very compartmentalized. And then we have this guy who's just throwing it all together, oh, you yeah. know? And, um, you know, didn't try to keep his people, I mean, until they got to Guyana, but they were at, you know, until, you know, when they were in California, they didn't, you know, when they got to California, they weren't encouraged to go make friends outside of the church, but they could still go and have jobs and, you know, do that sort of thing. It wasn't, he didn't get really bad about it till toward the end. And then of course, moved all these people to Guyana, but it just fascinates me that all of these people bought into this mass delusion and were happy on some level to sign over their money, you know, their autonomy and all this to, to this man who admittedly he was very charismatic. Um, everything about him says he was a very, you know, uh, striking and compelling presence, especially when he was preaching. Um, he had a lot of zeal and fire and passion that people really connected to. 
there was a sort of weird ennui happening after World War II when we're hearing about things like the Mad Men, you know, the, you know, the people who were taking Wall Street by storm. Right. But there was a significant part of the country that was, they were still trying to get their feet after World War II. And this, you know, for people who were uncertain about what are we supposed to be doing with our lives, he was happy to step in and tell them. Well, and there was a lot more religious fervor, I believe, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. There was that whole anti-communism fervor. And he was a communist, but he was using all that to rile up his church, mm -hmm. that fervor, that need for God. Mm -hmm. I, it's just, it's weird. And, you know, I almost think of cults in some way, at least cult leaders in particular, as being like the abusive husband or boyfriend in a relationship. They mm -hmm. gaslight. They tell oh, yes. you things over and over. It's part of that abusive behavior. Mm -hmm. And they isolate you from your loved ones mm -hmm. because they don't want you hearing anything different. Right. And then he took the isolation to an extreme mm -hmm. by going to Guyana. Mm -hmm. So it's just yeah. wild. Well, and then, I mean, he used sex as a weapon as well. Mm -hmm. So he would have sex with people and then basically kind of hold it over them. It's one more secret he knew about them. And I mean, I just feel so much empathy for the families of the people who bought oh. into this cult because I remember how crazy I was going when my dad with dealing with my dad right. and that was one person who managed to scam money out of a bit of money out of him and we have, we were able to step in before anything got you know irreversible right but I just think of what we went through trying to help him heal you know, first of all, trying to help him realize he was being brainwashed, you know, right. and that he was, you know, I just can't even imagine what they went through watching this happen to their children, their brothers and their sisters. And then they all end up dead in Guyana. Yeah. It's like, and this is the importance to fact checking in general. Mm -hmm. If somebody keeps telling you what you think is wrong, look it up yourself and make sure. Don't believe that just because they're telling you it. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah try to avoid that cult like mentality because it's, it's not safe for you. It's not safe for the people around you, but you lose your sense of self when you get into that mindset. Mm -hmm. Don't join a cult. Yeah. <laughs> and it's okay to step away and go and be like, Nope, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I was that one college student that always got approached by somebody to join the religious group on campus. Oh yeah. And what's funny is I was agnostic. <laughs> I was so not interested, but they'd always come at me. I guess I had this look on my face of, oh, she needs somebody. She needs God. I don't know. I was always afraid that there was going to be a cult because weirdly at 19, I had that concern. I did not want to get drawn into a cult. I knew way too much. I was a murderino way back then. Well, I mean, when we were teenagers, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff about right. how to avoid cults and I mean it was everywhere that's right I almost forgot about that yeah I mean and so I we probably should look up what cults were happening at that time that yeah. this was such a big deal but well I know we heard about Charles Manson and his cult and mm -hmm. Jim Jones and his cult there must have been some other ones going on too and it was just mm -hmm. such a big thing and it was probably an after-school special for all we remember mm -hmm. but yeah so somebody would come up to me I go no Oh, come on, you know, you can make friends. No. <laughs> wow. And here's me. I tried to join several and they kept kicking me out. 
I just, I'm like, I'm not going to get sucked here, Dan. No, no. I no. struggled with obedience. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. I'm so glad we did this. You have a great week now. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.